Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Here is CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger with your New Year's resolutions. Okay, let me guess. Uh, Don't freak out no matter what. Well, don't freak out is an excellent piece of advice, no matter what. But, you know, sometimes it's great to do that um, on both sides of the equation. Don't freak out. Don't get too happy. Don't get too sad. You know, my father was an old time trader for many years. He used to say uh, it's never as good or as bad as you think in these markets. Last year was pretty bad. But, you know, when I think about thinking or looking at the new year, it's a very good opportunity to take stock, right? Just to figure Mm -hmm. out what's going on. And I think that um, for many people and a lot of people that I have been speaking to, especially over the last three years amid the pandemic, there are a lot of people who are examining what's going on in their financial lives. And they're really looking ahead and saying, well, what do I want to do? Well, how do I want to live my life differently, not just my financial life? And I think it always starts with this process of, of trying to figure out where you stand. You know, frankly, there is no way to reset to a new place until you understand where you are today. And that may mean looking at how you're spending your money. And, you know, I think that a lot of people hate this idea because they think someone like me is going to say, oh, if you don't drink a latte, you're going to be a millionaire. It's not true. Uh, But mostly I think people are like, oh, I don't really even want to see what those numbers look like. It's a little embarrassing. It's like a little bit scary. What am I really doing? But this is a, a key to your understanding some of the patterns in your life and, and actually also some of the emotional background and baggage that we bring to our lives that then morph into our financial lives. It'd be great if you would write a book about this so that people you know, could have it at hand every time they're they're in doubt. Yes, it would be. And that is what I did, in fact. So my book is called The Great Money Reset, Change Your Work, Change Your Wealth, Change Your Life. And it actually is in response to conversations that I have had with people on the radio and on my two podcasts, because I think people were really anxious. They were confused during the pandemic. They really wanted to make sense of their financial choices. But really, that has morphed into something much larger, as I see it. And many more people are contacting me and saying, is this really how I want to live? Hmm. And I would walk the listeners through a series of questions about their financial life to help them understand the options that did exist. And I think that that's sort of an interesting thing to consider, which is, You know, if you really are saying these kinds of things to yourself, I hate my job, I hate where I am, why am I living in this very high cost area, could I do something different? It does mean you're going to have to incorporate your financial life into that. And that means that you have to understand that to reset to a new place, you have to understand where you are today. You have to look at your spending habits. You look at your income, but you look at other aspects of your financial life. You look at, you know, am I sitting on a boatload of equity in a home that I really don't want to keep over the long term, but I'm really scared to let it go. Mm -hmm. And in some respects, I felt like people were contacting me to have a permission structure so that they could change their lives. Is it fair to say that there are some people who are just not psychologically constituted to be in the stock market? Oh, yes, absolutely. There are. And and I hear from people like that all the time. You know, if someone is just absolutely 
freaked out and just cannot take the ride, there is nothing wrong with that. I had a mother-in-law and father-in-law who were like that, who were children of the Depression and, you know, bought an investment at some point in their lives, got hammered and said, I never want to own a stock again. That's fine as long as you are saving a lot of money in boring savings accounts or bonds that can pay you enough down the line. So you could say, I never want to take risk again. Most of us don't have enough cash flow to save enough money in safe stuff to actually make that happen. So we try to use the stock and bond markets to give us a boost along the way to help us grow our money faster than the pace of inflation. The problem is that we will encounter a year like last year many times in our lives that will be really rough. Last year being somewhat unique because both stocks and bonds went down, but still you're going to have a rotten year here and there and it ain't going to feel good. So if you don't like that feeling, you are then really saying to yourself, I need to only put enough money away that will get me where I want to go, but I may need to put more money away in safe stuff because it cannot grow as fast as some of the riskier stuff. One thing, um, I, I've heard some analysis that the, the head of the Fed, uh, Jerome Powell, is out to terrify investors at this point. That uh, the, the rest of us are sufficiently terrified, but the people worth like $100 million or so are still, you know, renting their private jets and living their, their high-end lifestyle and apparently uh, refusing to, uh, to help uh, get rid of inflation. What do you think? Um, all right. I don't think Jerome Powell wants to terrify anyone. Um, but I do think what the, you know, the tough thing for Powell is that every time a piece of economic data emerges that shows that, hey, maybe the Fed doesn't have to do as much, he has to counter that with saying, wait a second. I still have a job at hand. And what do I mean by that? So, you know, when you have the December jobs report came out, it was a solid report. 223,000 jobs were created. The unemployment rates three and a half percent. That was the good news that many people focused on. And I think the investment community didn't care about that number. They cared about the wage growth and the pace of wage growth is starting to decelerate in a big way. And many investors on the day that jobs report came out, pushed stock indexes higher in a big way. Why? Because they said, well, if wage growth is decelerating, then the Fed doesn't have to raise rates again. Right. And guess what? Jerome Powell is going to get out on the speech and say, that's not exactly the case. That's one month of data. We like the trend, but inflation is still our number one priority. And the Fed has already said, don't worry about whether there's another quarter point or another half point. Focus on the fact that we may need to keep interest rates higher for a longer time than you are anticipating. And that's how he hopes to not necessarily scare, but warn the investment community. Don't think we're reversing course anytime soon. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger, the author of The Great Money Reset. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Seattle's Morning News, Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. The story of Buffalo Bill's safety, DeMar Hamlin, looks like it might have a uh, happy ending. Certainly happier than we might have expected after seeing what happened. Let's page the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD, and heart surgeon. So you know something about what happens when when someone suffers cardiac arrest. And uh, what do you think about the recovery that, uh, that DeMar Hamlin seems to have made? 
I don't think really we know exactly what happened to him. You know, the scene on television was pretty dramatic. And uh, a number of people speculated that um, he had a condition called Commodio Cortis. And Commodio Cortis is a known condition, but it's pretty rare. There's actually a registry for it. And it usually happens about 15 to 20 times a year. Typically in the registry, it's been associated with baseball and hockey and lacrosse, not necessarily with football. And it is often associated with, you know, a hard object striking the left side of the chest abruptly and then causing cardiac arrest due to ventricular fibrillation. And interestingly enough, when my kids were younger, I used to coach uh, Little League Baseball on Mercer Island, and I would give a sort of first aid lecture to the other fathers who coached or whatnot. And this is one of the conditions I actually talked about was commodio cortis because there were reports of kids playing catcher, getting hit in the chest with a baseball and having a cardiac arrest. But as I understand it, the, the blow has to be a very specific type of blow. So it's a very specific thing. And in order for it to occur, you have to get struck in the chest at an exact point in the cardiac cycle such that it results in you having ventricular fibrillation. Usually when it happens, part of the diagnosis is that you have no other underlying cardiac problems. But I think what probably happened, and this hasn't really been openly discussed, so I am clearly speculating here based on you know my knowledge of having dealt with this over, over decades in many, many patients, is that he suffered a cardiac arrest, and the biggest concern is what's going to happen to the brain. Was the brain adequately perfused with blood and oxygen during the period of CPR? One of the ways that you can actually protect the brain is to actually, you put somebody on a ventilator, you medically paralyze them, you medically sedate them, and you cool them down to lower their metabolic rate. And then you slowly bring the temperature back up to allow the brain to recover and minimize the damage to it. And so I wonder if that wasn't what was going on in the first 48 hours when they were saying that he was in critical condition. Because normally you would expect somebody who, you know, had a cardiac event and a quick resuscitation to be able to wake up and breathe on their own unless you were concerned about neurological damage. But, you know, the first signs of looking for any return of neurological function is just, is somebody able to move? Do they open their eyes? And ultimately they did witness that. And then he was able to communicate by writing. And then later, I think five days later, they took the breathing tube out and he's been able to communicate since. But there really has been no you know, comprehensive update on his overall status other than he's been making improvement. Apparently, he, didn't, he did not require surgery, right? No, he did not require surgery. Well, again, what remains to be seen, and, you know, this hasn't been discussed, so this is really, you know, me just speculating based on experience and other possible things that could have happened. Is it possible that he had some electrical abnormality like a long QT syndrome or something like that? I mean, we know of other athletes who have suffered sudden cardiac death. For example, it happens uh, more commonly in basketball players where they have died on the, on the court, famously the Hank Gathers case. But in those cases, the athletes had an underlying cardiac condition that had not been diagnosed. And uh, it was that that ultimately caused him a problem. So you know, if it, it is possible that DeMar Hamlin does have some sort of electrical abnormality, and that was actually what we witnessed during the game. It was just coincidentally tied to the tackle on the field. 
And if that's the case, it may be that he undergoes a procedure where he gets an ablation of the abnormal pathway in his heart, and then they can freeze the abnormal areas that could cause uh, the electrical abnormalities. Is it conceivable that he returns to football? I mean, I think it is conceivable that he returns to football, and I think that is actually more largely going to be based on One, did he suffer any neurological damage? The other possibility would be if he has suffered any sort of what we call ischemic damage to the heart, where the brief period of time that there wasn't adequate oxygen potentially going to the heart muscle itself would weaken the heart. And although although he may be able to go about life and live, you know, normal daily activities, would he be able to perform at at the level of cardiovascular performance necessarily uh, to play in the NFL. And so that question needs to be answered. But for example, earlier this season, you know, J.J. Watt, who's, uh, you know, the defensive lineman for the Arizona Cardinals, went into atrial fibrillation and uh, he's been playing the rest of the season. Hmm. So it is possible to have a cardiac condition and to get it treated and then continue to play at an elite level. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dan. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Time for this week's edition of Crime and Punishment. We're joined by Casey McNurthney of the King County Prosecutor's Office. And Casey, this week we have a couple of uh, sentencing cases where it strikes me these are not your typical criminals. Two cases where people made a bad decision in a time of crisis. Let's talk about, talk about the case of uh, Michael Irwin Henderson first. So he was somebody who lived on Vashon Island, and and he killed another Vashon Island resident who was very beloved. Nate Dorn Jr. was known by many people on, on Vashon Island, and a lot of people forget that that's even in King County, but it certainly is, and it's a very close-knit community. Um, he was walking home and was hit by Mr. Henderson, and it was it was a terrible crime, and, and it really shocked a lot of people. And The defendant and the victim knew each other, they actually had been friends, and and so it was an especially hard hard day in court. A daughter and sister of Nate Dorn Jr., who was killed, talked about how much he meant to them and how much he meant to the community. And he was a, a decorated Vietnam veteran who served as a medic. And and um, what his sister said was, "My brother would have gotten out of the car and rendered first aid and called nine one one and and held someone in their arms until." They took their last breath, you know, but that's not what this defendant decided to do. And and that's the difference between my brother, who was a hero, and the defendant. Yeah. Now, but it, but the defendant didn't realize he had he had hit a friend, right? He didn't know who he'd hit. Right. It And it it wasn't clear because he also was convicted of, of hit and run. So he didn't stop. So it's, it's not clear if he was impaired or not, or if he knew who he hit, or if he just thought that he hit somebody. He, he has a, a DUI history. So it's, mm-hmm. there was speculation that he might have been under the influence, but we don't know with any kind of certainty. And so what was his sentence? He was sentenced to 30 months on Friday. And what's interesting is the judge in this case said, you know, it's state lawmakers who set the range for this court and we've got to follow the the guidelines. But uh, she was speaking to the family and she said, "I, I can really understand that when somebody dies, particularly in the manner in which your loved one died and was left alone, these sentencing ranges really seem out of whack with the pain that you're experiencing as a family. Yeah. And it was never determined whether the driver was in fact impaired. 
Right. Yeah. They couldn't tell because by the time they identified who, who it was, the, the time uh, had elapsed. Then there's this case of uh, Christine Warren. This one goes back 25 years. I think I vaguely remember this case, but this was about uh, a newborn infant who was just left to die. Yes, it was a really terrible case. There was a baby boy who was found in a, a gas station along Lake City Way in 1997. And um, the woman who delivered it didn't tell anybody other than the, the baby boy's father that she was pregnant and went into the gas station, asked to use the bathroom, ended this little boy's life. It made a lot of headlines in 1997. It was a really terrible case, and but Seattle police never forgot about it. Yes, and in particular, uh, Detective Rolf Norton decided to take this on. And you talked with him? I did. I talked to him after the sentencing on, on, on Friday. He was there along with Kelly Rosa, who is a paralegal from our office, who remembers that call out. I, uh, she was in our office back in 1997. She's done really great work over the years. And they wanted to make sure to be there to represent this little boy who, who didn't have a chance. Here's what Detective Norton told you. I remember exactly where I was when I first pulled out the crime scene photos in this incident. It was January 2018. I was laying on my stomach on a bed. The binder was down on the floor, and I'm paging through it. I'm reading Detective O'Keefe's follow-up. I come to the photos, baby doe, garbage can, and it's mind-blowing. I mean, it's, frankly, it's life-changing, and and you, you see something that you immediately want to file away and never go back to, but you can't because you have a job and a mission, and no one's looking out for Abby Doe, except for us. That's why it means so much. So he And he just took a personal interest in the case then? He did, yes. Yeah. Genetic genealogy was what made the break in this case. Mm-hmm. And it was Detective Norton who went out of state to find someone who could help do that, and then matched it through DNA that was preserved from the crime scene. And then he went to her apartment in Seattle, in North Seattle, and, and she said, yes, it, it was me. So and, she, and, she, and she right away knew that she'd been caught. She did. It was really remarkable, you know. And, and so you also have to balance, you know, taking care of, of her, too, because you don't want someone to, to harm themselves in a situation like that. This was by far the most serious thing that she'd ever done. And, yeah. and so it was a it was a unique situation. There's, there's never been a, a case in Washington state that involves such a young infant that has been solved so many years later. So it was really one of a kind. What were her circumstances at the time? Did she explain that to you? Uh, not to me, but in court, the judge addressed that and talked about trauma that she went through as a, a youth and as a young person. She was 27 at the time. She's 52 now. And part of the of the condition of her sentence is to continue going through therapy because what the judge noted is that when she really – locked into therapy, uh, that they could see an emotional and pretty noticeable difference, that she understood the gravity of, of what she'd done and, and is progressing far from, from where she was. You know, and what the judge noted in court on, on Friday was that there might have been this belief that if, if you just wait until the last minute, you don't, you don't have to deal with it. And, and there wasn't the emotional understanding that, you know, that I think most parents or most people would have. And also the, the safe haven law uh, that we have now in Washington state wasn't around until 2002, and this case was five years earlier. So she was frightened. She was. And there's, there's a couple ways to look at this. You know, 
you can say, even though you freaked out, you know, drive two more miles down Lake City Way and there's a fire station right there. Even though there's not a safe haven law, someone would have helped you or just call 911. Uh, there, there's really no easy answer out of this. And she was sentenced on, on Friday. The range for manslaughter in the first degree can go up to eight and a half years. She was sentenced to five years in community custody supervision with the Department of Corrections. And I guess that's the question that'll be in some people's minds anyway. So many years later... What is the point of disciplining? I mean, she's not going to go to jail, so I guess that's good. Uh, of disciplining this woman for something that happened so long ago at a time when there weren't the the laws to protect somebody in that situation that we have now. I think what prosecutors who handle the case w- would say, and certainly Seattle police too, is is that it's not as much about punishment as it is about accountability to make sure that that case gets resolved. You know, and and really. The people like Kelly and the prosecutors and and the police who were involved in this case wanted to you know to be there and to do this case on behalf of this little boy who who could have had a very different outcome. Casey McNerthy, King County Prosecutor's Office. Casey, thank you very much. You bet, Dick. Thanks a lot. It is time for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. I was sent this story by a few people over the weekend on Twitter. So, okay, I get it. Another home run by CBS's Steve Hartman, about 11 year old boy with a special gift who received a special gift, a grand piano. Jude's father, Isaiah. So one day it just shows up at the house. Yes. All for free. Who does that? The answer in a moment. But first, the reason. About a year and a half ago, Jude's dad heard a noise coming from the basement. There was an old keyboard down there, but no one knew how to play it. Certainly not his autistic son, Jude. Or so he thought. Isaiah then got Jude a larger keyboard to see what more he could do. And boy, could he do. The kid never had a lesson. No one taught him any of this. How do you explain that you're as good as you are? It's a miracle. You think it's a miracle? That's what I prefer. Bill Magnuson prefers that too. Is he special? He's beyond special. He's Mozart level. It's coming from somewhere beyond. Bill is a piano tuner. He saw a local news story about Jude. Heard him play, learned how his parents immigrated from Ghana, how they're raising four children and sending money back to Ghana. What resources are left over to help this special little soul? Yours. Yeah. Using an inheritance from his father, Bill bought the piano, spent $15,000 has promised to tune it once a month for the rest of his life. Very nice. And he's even paying for Jude to get professional lessons. We're family now. Somebody to just love your son like that by making sure that his future is secured. We are super thankful. Yeah. Press the pedal. Caring for other children as your own. The defining note of humanity. And Steve Hartman does it again. 
748, and now from the Gian Ursula Show, it starts at 9. Here he is, G. Scott. Mm. So you were at the game. Yes, you, sir. Cor- you correctly predicted what would happen. Mm-hmm. Didn't get the score right, but you correctly predicted what would happen. Yeah. And did you think it would unfold the way it did? Uh, I don't. I don't think anyone can predict how a Seahawk game is going to go other than your blood pressure is going to be high during the game. You're going to say a few swear words from time to time. And then at the very end, there's going to be a dramatic feeling that you have, whether it's good and or bad. The only thought that I had yesterday morning when I was on the way to the stadium, got to the stadium at 830 in the morning for the pregame show and everything. The the only thing that really stood out to me was I just knew the Seahawks were going to the playoffs. I really did. And I and and the reason why is I just kept thinking about 2010 when they went to the playoffs when they were the, the beginning of when they had Earl Thomas and Russell Okung and they had a Cam Chancellor and it was kind of the beginning of Pete Carroll's his first year and in that year one of the most important things was that they just get to the playoffs just for taste. Right. Like, you know, and the ex- expectations of what the Seahawks did back then in the playoffs, like, oh, you're just happy to be in the playoffs. And you remember Beast Quake happened against the New Orleans Saints in that playoff game. But you just wanted them to get there. And what ended up happening is, is the young guys got a taste of the playoffs. So here we are. Fast forward to today or yesterday. That is, I thought. This needs to happen again for the Seahawks, where the rookies, the new guys, the youngsters get a taste of the playoffs to uh, to kind of understand what it's like. This is the first time, right? This is the first time that the Seahawks are going to the playoffs without the usual suspects yeah. that we used <laughs> right. to have, right? There is really a new sheriff in town, Geno Smith. There's really a bunch of new talent, Ken Walker III and Tariq Woolen and all of these young guys on the offensive line. This is a very young team overachieving the expectations that most of us had. Speaking of Geno Smith, it starts with him. Listening to his post-game interview yesterday, mm. You know, it really touched my heart. You can see the emotion. I don't think that we'll ever know exactly why he was kind of coming to tears. But I'd imagine that here he has been in the NFL for so long and he's finally getting his just due. Or he could be be crying about one thing. I'm going to go check my cell phone and my wife is probably going to hit me up because... (laughs) You guys ever notice that when you get a bonus from work, your significant other wants to speak for it? What, did well, he get a bonus? Yeah, for going, oh, he got a bonus yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday, the Seahawks going to the playoffs gave Geno Smith $1 million. Oh, I would love that so, kind of bonus. So you know what I mean? You know, they come, uh, just so you know, we still getting that wash and dryer. You know, we need that wash and dryer. We need a new stove. We need a new, a new, oh, new, new countertop. Great. Who else gets the who else gets the accolades? Because I've seen a lot, you know, on Twitter of people saying, "Well, John Schneider for being smart enough to move away from Russell Wilson, Pete I, Carroll." You know, a lot of people were hating on him for you know a year before this season started. Going, does he really have it? Is he too old? I think, I think the entire organization. Mm-hmm. Because if there's one thing that I've learned is that again, we talk about what we see on the field, but there's so many things that go into the Seahawks winning. So yeah, I'm glad you brought up John Schneider. Look, 
there's a lot of people that just thought, John Schneider, you don't know what you're doing, right? I can't believe you're going to trade this Russell Wilson to the Denver Broncos. Are you kidding me? You're going to do that? Oh, my goodness. Did you just release Bobby Wagner? Oh, you don't know what you're doing? This is unbelievable. The Denver Broncos were 5-11, and they uh, were eliminated from the playoffs. They will be giving their number 5 pick to the Seattle Seahawks. (laughs) The Seattle Seahawks are 9-8. They're going to the playoffs. Geno Smith is the quarterback. Geno Smith broke records. Speaking of records, I want to kind of go over some I records. I saw that list. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. I had no idea. I mean, if you guys want to know, and if you're taking score at home, franchise records broken just by Geno Smith. Uh, completions, which was formerly hailed by Russell Wilson. Uh, completions in the season 384. Well, Geno Smith beats that with 397. Completion percentage, the highest before. Russell Wilson had that at 68.8%. Well, Geno Smith comes in, and he's at 70% on that. Uh, passing yards in a season, 42-19. 4,219 was the record before. That was Russell Wilson. Now, Geno Smith has it at 4,254. Everybody's like, Russell who? I yeah. don't know. Makes you think we should have put him in earlier. And I, I, I think the takeaway, I'll leave you with this. Yesterday, I think that Pete Carroll um, cemented himself into the Hall of Fame in the future. Mm-hmm. The fact that the Seahawks are going to the playoffs with Geno Smith is a quarterback. Let you know, Pete Carroll has the sauce. Nice. Who's got the sauce? <laughs> Dave Ross. Dave Ross. <laughs> Dave's got the no, sauce. Dave got the sauce. Generously, nine o'clock on Cairo News Radio. And today at high noon, the 105-day legislative session begins in Olympia, and we are very pleased to have. Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich covering it. How about that, Dave? Old times. When did we, we last work together? Because uh, much younger meet. people. <laughs> <laughs> I think dirt was just starting to that, grow. That okay. Um, yeah, so again, we're back in session starting at noon today and is nothing new, really, because the Democrats have strong control of power here. They have 19, above from 19 seats in the House, they have nine seats in the Senate, so it's a Democratic majority, you have a Democratic governor, so pretty much the Democrats are going to run the show as they have for quite a while here. So what are the Republicans going to do? You know, well, let's talk about, let's hear from uh, House Speaker Lori Jenkins, the head, the top Democrat in the House on what she thinks the priorities are going to be. They've said that housing and homelessness is a very important issue for us to focus on. Behavioral health is kind of a subset. It overlaps. There's a Venn diagram there. Community safety and protecting abortion rights. And again, that's the Democrat version of it. And and the uh, head Republican in the House, uh, Senator John Braun, had had this to say. When we talk about the top issues uh, around the state, uh, they really haven't changed. Uh, There's still public safety, and we've talked a little bit about the Blake decision. We need to work on the pursuit bill. Uh, There's still affordability, the cost of, of food, of gas, of housing. And housing is going to be a huge issue, as we've talked about already, Dave, because... 
We've mentioned the $4 billion bond that uh, Governor Inslee wants to float out there that would provide thousands of house uh, units of housing for the next six years. Again, that's going to have to go to a vote of the people because they have to raise the debt limit for the state of Washington. That's in the Constitution. So mm-hmm. we'll all get a chance to vote on that. Um, he talked about the Blake decision. The Blake decision is that decriminalization, basically, of all drugs that the state Supreme Court did in two- 2021. Last session, they tried to fix that and basically had the cops go out and once they get somebody who has drugs on them, encourage them to go to treatment. So now both sides have said they want to fix that. Yeah. Again, how they're going to fix it is the same question as they had last year. Uh, the Democrats are a little bit lenient on things. They didn't want to basically, de- they basically kind of want to decriminalize it, but have some sort of tough measure to it. So they're having it. They're maybe going to raise it to a gross misdemeanor, which is still an offense if you're mm-hmm. carrying any amount of uh, illegal drugs on you. So that's just one of the things that they're going to be doing now. Um, and that 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 bill expires in June, that that so-called fix they did last mm-hmm. time. So they have to do something on the Blake decision. Well, they have to show some results, right? I mean, you've covered the homeless thing uh, when you were at Como uh, in depth, to say the mm-hmm. least. And it's pretty clear that just housing first isn't going to work. I mean, if you're if you're addicted to drugs and uh, you're basically slowly killing yourself, you're not going to take care of your your housing. Uh, And there's not enough um, there are not enough facilities for meaningful rehabilitation for all the people who need it. So at, at some point, it's going to require a huge investment, not just in housing, but in rehab as well, right? And, yeah, it's well, correct. And even in the rehab, we've talked about the worker shortage. That's a big issue, again, at the legislature this year, is how to combat worker shortages in all industry, not just in government, but in private sector. And that even goes to behavioral health. There are just not enough behavioral health workers in the state to treat the mentally ill that need it in facilities that we don't have. So um, what they want to do is lower the credential standard for someone who would to treat the mentally ill, maybe even take two year requirement off the books so that even if, after you get a master's, you do two, your 2000 hours, you don't need the extra two years of training that Washington state requires. So they get them in the mental health system. Yeah. Now I know that the Democrats are solidly in control, but it'd be nice if there was some bipartisanship here to get, you know, buy-in from even people who didn't vote democratic. So is there an effort to do that? Well, let's talk, uh, uh, J.K. Wilcox, who is the House major, uh, minority leader for the Republicans, he is the uh, uh, he had something to say about trying to get things that we all agree on. Do that first, and do the hard stuff later. When we have so much in common, let's address the things that we have in common that will solve problems for people in Washington first. If we have to do the ideology, we can have those arguments later. But let's make sure that we accomplish things that are important first. And when he talks about ideology, he's really talking about housing because that is such a big issue this year. Democrats like to have a governmental solution. That's what Lori Jenkins, the House Speaker, has already said. The Republicans want to lean more on the private sector to solve housing. Do we need $4 billion bond issue to jumpstart the housing that we need in the state. There's there's short 250,000 units right now in terms of how much affordable housing is needed in the state. You know, they, the, the state uh, a couple of years ago, they, we've basically had an influx of a million people since 2010. Mm-hmm. And we've only built 350,000 
units for that million people. So that's just everybody, not yeah. just whether low income or high income. What's the Republican solution to that? It's to relaxing some of the requirements, right? Well, they want to have the private sector rely on them to help with the fix. And the Democrats are basically saying, we've done that. We mm-hmm. haven't, we've relied on the public sector to build affordable housing, and that has not happened. In the private sector. I mean, yeah, we've relied on the private sector, and that has not happened. So we need a governmental solution, and that's this $4 billion bond. Well, have the Republicans addressed that? Because my understanding is that when a, when a builder invests in a housing project, they're not building for poor, for poor people. There's no money in that. Yeah. So that's why you see all these high end high rises going up in downtown Seattle. I don't know how f- how full they are, but that's clearly where the where the uh, investment. They may going. be taking a lead for what Seattle does. Seattle requires builders to offset. You have to have some sort of affordable housing if you want this project to go through. Yeah. Also, a big issue is zoning density. Uh, the state wants to increase density, especially right. around transit areas, people where people live. And a lot of cities want to reject that. They don't want tight quarters for everybody with affordable housing. So there's going to be a state versus city issue on increasing affordable housing through z- changing the zoning codes. And zoning is really a local issue. They don't. The, a lot of cities do not want the state to come in and change their zoning laws. Mm-hmm. Well, the fear is that too many poor people will move in. Is that, isn't that right? Well, uh, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how the city... But at the same time, you don't want to see people intense along the freeway. That's right. So, so what's it going to be? I mean, uh, not everybody's going to be rich. Not everybody's going to be even middle class. I mean, that's, we, we just know that's life. Yeah. And talking about rich, what about tax relief? That's always a big mm-hmm. issue. Uh, they're going into this session with about $4 billion in surplus. Yeah. Uh, last time they went in at $15 billion in surplus. Well, what happened? Well, the Democrats found places where that money could be used. Yeah. The Republicans have said, let's give it back to the people. And again, that's what's happening already this time. $4 billion sitting around. Why don't we have some direct tax relief to the people? The Democrats want to do targeted tax relief, meaning mm-hmm. they're going to just focus on certain uh, vocations that need it, certain low-income areas. Certain qualifications, you'll get some tax relief, whereas the Republicans want it broad. They said even the middle class is hurting because of the recession. Let's give them some help. They may not qualify for all this targeted tax relief. And again, that's going to be another argument that we've yeah. heard before. Yes. <laughs> uh, we'll see. We'll hear it again. All right. Matt Markovich will be covering legislation for us. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome. Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.